Hey guys, welcome to the Tales of Moxie podcast. I'm your host, Jenna Lee, and I'm so glad that you're here. I created this podcast with the simple desire of wanting women to have a place to share their stories. Our stories are so powerful, and God's fingerprints are evident throughout them all. So each week, I sit down with another woman who is brave enough to share her story with us. We talk all the things with no judgment. While each story is unique to the person telling it, I find that I see myself in all of them, and I'm sure that you will too. Welcome back to this week's episode of Tales of Moxie. This week, we have our second man on the podcast, and I am so excited. I want to introduce you guys to David B. Hampton. David Hampton is a musician, and he is author of After the Miracle, Illusions Along the Path to Restoration, and his most recent book is Our Authentic Selves, Reflections on What We Believe and What We Wish We Believed. We talked about his recovery and restoration. We talked about sober living. We talked about his entire story to get where he is now and to be living in that sober reality. You guys, he was the real deal. He did not hold anything back. He was real and he was raw and he was honest and I loved every second of it. He currently has his own practice as a certified professional addiction recovery coach in Brentwood, Tennessee. And if you want to be able to learn more about him or reach out to him, his website is www www.davidbhampton.com and if you listen to the entire episode he also gives his phone number at the end so I encourage you guys to reach out and to really just reflect on what it means to live sober all right hi David welcome to Tales of Moxie thanks for being here today hey thank you for having me so much I appreciate it I am so excited because I read After the Miracle about a year ago when someone gave it to me, um, and it really spoke to my story, and I know a lot of the women's stories that I have as listeners. So I would love if you would kind of acquaint yourself with the listeners and tell us a little bit about your story, and then we can kind of jump in. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, I was I was brought up in the church. I grew up in a... Um, uh, kind of a, a more fundamental uh, belief system and uh, was raised in that uh, throughout my childhood and all of that. And um, I was also uh, a musical kid. So I had a, um, I had a background where um, my musical gifts showed up really early and uh, my parents were able to uh, send me to um, a University of Evansville preparatory school of music uh, from the time I was in about the fourth grade until I graduated high school. And then I went on to study music in college. And then, um, but uh, the, the music and my faith kind of always seemed to go together. So that never um, was really, I, I never really remember a time where I had one without the other um, necessarily. But what I did experience growing up was that um, I got a strong message because being a musician uh, kid, you you are groomed to perform, and especially if you go to a music you know preparatory school, and it's all about performing. But then, uh, oddly enough, or ironically enough, so was my faith. Uh, it was about performing. God, you know, needed uh, good PR people apparently, and I was being groomed to be one, and that was kind of pretty much what it was, and. Um, so I grew up with this kind of, um, I guess, a certain amount of anxiety and a certain amount of tension uh, in, my, um, in my story. And when I discovered alcohol at about 13, my parents didn't drink at all. 
Um, and uh, a, a friend of my dad's, a colleague, had given him a bottle of Kentucky bourbon, and um, they kind of left it in their um, uh, their pantry because they didn't really want to give it to anybody, and they, yet they didn't really know what to do with it, so they just hadn't done anything with it. So they put it behind the baked goods in their pantry, which is, I joke now, is where Baptists keep their liquor, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they uh, they had it back there, and um, I they went to a Christmas party one night, and I basically mixed myself uh, my first drink. You know, my my uh, aunt and uncle who were Methodists, I had seen them mix drinks with Sprite, so I thought, well, maybe if it, you know you mix this with Sprite, you'll get this, um, you know, you result. And so um, I was thirteen, and I remember vividly going into my parents' family room and just. Um, having my first drink and I didn't feel anxious or ashamed or alone or uh, perfectionistic or that God loved me less or that I had to be something other than I was. I felt what I perceived to be peace for the first time in my whole life, I think. And I felt like I'd been lied to, you know, like this is a wonderful thing. This is going to be a part of my life and felt like I was going to press pause on that moment. And, um, and this was going to be a part of my life when I was old enough to experience an opportunity to do it or have it, I was going to do it. So, um, so I, I grew up and, um, found opportunities, uh, to drink, um, privately and still maintain my good little Christian boy witness and still perform and all that stuff. Um, uh, and so, um, I got married when I was 20 years old, mm. uh, which I don't recommend, but that's what I did. Yeah, it's young. <laughs> it, was, it is young. And, uh, but I got married at 20 and married someone that um, I met in a Christian music group that I traveled with in the summers through high school. And uh, she was three years older and uh, she uh, was a singer in that group. And um, we got married and... Um, Things were great and eventually moved to Nashville and I had two songwriting deals, eventually became a, a staff member at a church, uh, a kind of a large church in Nashville and um, where a lot of um, at the time and, and really even now still uh, some well-known Christian music people and country music people, entertainers um, attend a church. And so I had a really big talent pool to work with. It was a great opportunity. Um, but at the same time uh, that I went on staff at the church, my wife was diagnosed with a very primary progressive form of MS that eventually uh, became very debilitating. And um, I became more and more of a caregiver and eventually moved my office into my house and worked from home a lot. I quit traveling, um, did music things that were more localized and required writing and things like that. But um, her care became um, more and more of a primary uh, focus of our lives, and it pretty it pretty well the disease pretty well dominated our lives at one point. Um, and she, um, you know, she was struggling a lot with um, everything that went with MS, a neurological uh, autoimmune disease, and um, so I uh, I was angry and I was struggling and she got sicker and I got sicker because I was drinking more. And the more she got sick, the more I drank, and the more I drank, uh, the more detached I became. And I was very functional, uh, but I was starting to have really bad um, 
I was, I was starting to have some really bad consequences and episodes um, related to all of that. And um, long story short, I drank every day for about five years after I quit trying to quit. <laughs> and I just decided, you know, well, I, the quitting is not working, so I'm going to quit trying to quit. And when I quit trying to quit, then the wheels really fell off. And I drank for about five years every day. And um, it just, it was a pretty nasty time. But our family looked great on paper, and we looked great on the outside. I, we have a daughter uh, who's now uh, 29. And, uh, but she was about five when her mom was diagnosed, and she was about 15 when I quit drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, anyway, we, we had a really tumultuous time. And so what happened was I got sober and went through a kind of a, an outpatient treatment plan with an addiction therapist and 12 step recovery and all the stuff we all do to get sober. And what I realized was my faith system was not helping me anymore. Um, and it really hadn't been for a long time. I think I was drinking at it more than I was, um, relying on it. Um, and, um, and I realized that there was a lot, as I got more and more clarity and I saw God working in bigger and bigger ways in the world and in, um, recovery and all those things, um, that, uh, we really have to reexamine everything we think we, that we think we know when we get sober or when we come out of a situation where we've been, you know, burned or really uh, uh, tested beyond our capacity. You know, we, we have to, we, we think the crisis is the crisis, but I really am finding that it's after the crisis that the, the real crisis begins because mm-hmm. that's when you're rebuilding. And that's kind of what I was um, uh, writing toward and about in After the Miracle is, um, is really the crisis after the crisis because that's where my faith was really uh, kind of everything was put out on the table and I had to just start from scratch. What do I think? What do I believe? What do I know? Um, and, um, and I thought sobriety was going to feel more supported from the people that were close to me. And I, and I found that that wasn't necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Everybody wasn't waiting to throw me a parade because a lot of people were pissed at me for a lot of things. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and rightly so, you know. I mean, I I I was not charming when I was drinking, and um, so I realized that not everybody was just lined up to celebrate this in the same way I was, and and so I began to think about all these different instances where, um, you know, uh, we look at things in the Bible, and we you know we see the miracle, and we all love the miracle stories, but I don't know if we think about after the miracle very much. And I wish I had been a little more prepared for the fact that um, I was gonna need a lot of support to rebuild uh, my, not just my life, but my faith, my relationships, um, what to expect out of other people, um, and what was um, realistic and fair. So anyway, that's uh, that was kind of that. And so, um, after a point in time, I, I realized that I was probably not uh, a good fit for a church staff position anymore. Um, nothing, nothing wrong with those, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you're not drinking the Kool-Aid you sell, you probably ought to quit working at the stand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, you, it's probably time to do something different. And uh, I had been working on some certification for addiction recovery work and coaching and things. And so 
I completed my certifications and I went to work uh, in private practice in a, um, uh, with a group of therapists uh, and a neurofeedback clinic in Brentwood, uh, Brentwood, Tennessee, which is just outside of Nashville. It's a very nice community um, outside of Nashville, Tennessee, where I live. And so, um, so I made this big kind of leap into a completely different career. I sold my house in the suburbs of Franklin, Tennessee, which is just a little horse farm town outside of uh, Nashville, which is growing, old Civil War town, but a lot of people uh, like Williamson County. And I sold my house there and moved into a security building downtown Nashville mm-hmm. um, with an apartment. Uh, my wife had passed away in um, 2013. And, um, and my daughter is married now and has a, a four month old little grandbaby. And uh, so about two years ago, I decided, you know, I've got this new career. Um, I don't um, need to be in a house in the suburbs by myself. So I've moved to this new area and community in a cool part of town of Nashville downtown. And, um, and then um, I joined a church that meets at Vanderbilt campus uh, called St. Augustine's Episcopal Church. Uh, Becca Stevens is our priest and she um, uh, launched a nonprofit called Thistle Farms and a, a thing called Magdalene House and Thistle Farms products benefits women who are coming off the street and out of addiction. And it's a very recovery minded uh, community congregation and it's very much more where I am spiritually coming from now uh, in my own uh, journey. But I, 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 I've been, you know, I'm the kid that came from fundamentalism to the guy who attends a pretty broad um, embracing Episcopal church and um, recovering alcoholic, former church staff guy. And it all sounds like a bunch of contradictions. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds know. like the gospel. <laughs> yeah, it is. It basically is. You know, it's just not the cookie cutter one. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it's not the one that's on the back of the card at, you know, a Christian bookstore. But um, but it's my truth and my reality. And um so that's how that's how I've um decided to live it and express it. So mm, you have such a powerful story. I one of the things that I loved so much listening now and even reading your story is when you had talked about, you had to reach a point when you decided to get sober of, do I want to be well or do I want to just stop drinking? And, and the, that impact and the difference that it was, and I want to be able to quote it well because it hit me well, but you said soberly living meant that you don't try to control life, that you understand what is and isn't your responsibility, and that you daily ask for the gift of his wisdom and build in enough silence to hear him speak. So when I read that, and I don't come from a past of addiction, mm-hmm. but I read that, and the first thing that I felt like I heard was like, am I sober living? Because uh-huh. that's such a different like narrative than I have heard. I, I was looking at it as the perspective, like you said, of okay, that means stop drinking or, you know, stop doing drugs or whatever the addiction is. You know, some people are overeating. Well then figure that out. I didn't look at it as like a way of life. And that might be because I haven't suffered from an addiction. But when I read that, I had to actually reevaluate like, okay, what in my life is not sober living? Because I hadn't seen it from that perspective. So can you elaborate maybe a little bit more on what that maybe shift looked like for you instead of trying to yeah. stop drinking, but to actually make this a sober lifestyle? Right. Um, 
that's a great, um, I, I appreciate you pulling that out. Cause that's a, that's a real pivotal part of the, of the, uh, the book. Um, and, and, and my, my sobriety, because what I did was I went up to, and I wrote about it, of course, in the book that you read, but I, I went up to a monastery, you know, and, uh, spent some time with monks, mm-hmm. uh, Benedictine monks, cause I quit trusting the Presbyterians and all that stuff. And so <laughs> I decided I'd go up and let the, uh, the Benedictine monks have a crack at my craziness. And so, mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I began to learn through AA, through my sponsor, and through the work with the monks is that um, most of us are addicted to control or the idea that we have control over anything, life, people. Um, you know, we try to manipulate circumstances. We pray, but we kind of really preach to God. We don't really uh, listen to God. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very much. Uh, that's a practice that I've had to learn and um, continue to learn. And, um, and, and living soberly for me was realizing that, um, you know, we say in AA, living life on life's terms, accepting life on life's terms, um, that, that I was not really being called to help other people change their circumstances as much as I was, um, trying to um, trying to embrace the reality and see the truth in the circumstances that I had and that I didn't have to, it wasn't about changing behavior. It was about changing me. Um, And that was hard because I really, you know, we all want to focus on the behavior. And even now in my practice, everybody comes in, you know, early on, they they're, they're troubled about their drinking or they're using or they're acting out some way. Um, and, and the reality is when you really start to talk to them about what they're, what they're drinking, what we say, what, what you're drinking at or what you're using at or eating at or doing at, um, we find that it's a lot of control and it's a lot of, uh, anxiety. It's a lot of resentment. Um, and to live soberly, I've got to admit those things and I've got to step back from them and be willing to let them go and admit that those aren't mine to fix. You know, um, I, I can do me and God, you know, and what, whatever that's going to look like. Um, but I can't, um, expect other people to change in order for me to be okay. I can't expect life to adjust so that I'm all right. I'm going to have to embrace something that says I'm not in control of all this and I'm going to have to find a way to peace with it. Um, and let go of my need for life to be this way so I can be okay because life may not, you know, um, I, I, <laughs> I often joke and it's a kind of a morbid joke, but I kind of joke like I'm the guy who, um, I feel like at times I'm the guy who was in the Seven Eleven during a robbery and I got shot, you know, and, um, and I lived mm. and so now I kind of just don't, like, well, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen to me? I got shot and I lived and, um, you know, so I'm not, I'm not that afraid of as much, you know, because I don't have that much control over it. Um, I've lived through things that I didn't think I could have. I would have said, oh, well, I could never do that. You know, people say that all the time. Well, when Trisha was sick, you know, I could never, um, take care of my spouse if they did that kind of care or I could never, uh, imagine losing my spouse. I couldn't live through that. And I'm thinking, well, um, you know, I don't recall getting a plan B on the 
brochure that said, yeah. you know, check yeah. this box uh, if you'd rather not endure this. Um, and we can go over here and maybe you can work it off in Uganda or something as a missionary. I mean, it wasn't like, yeah. it wasn't like, <laughs> um, yeah. it was just, this is going to happen. This is what is. And so living soberly for me is just imagining that I can't, um, I, I really don't have control over what other people do, think, uh, feel, believe, um, experience. I can do me and I can help them do them. Uh, but, but if I believe I'm in control, then I start to be God. Um, I start to play God. And when I do that, I, it, I, I get very resentful. And if I get resentful, then it feels my entitlement. My entitlement tells me I deserve to drink or do anything else I want to do for that matter. And, um, and that's not really living soberly, you know, living out of a place of entitlement and resentment. And, uh, I'm wondering when I'm listening to that, I'm wondering how much do you think like this starts that because all of us want that sort of control. It's built into our flesh, right? To not want to give control to God. Um, so we all can relate to this and just think about what is it in our life that we're trying to take control of. But I'm wondering, so how much do you think of it? Cause for, for me, and I'm, I don't know if you do the Enneagram, but I'm an Enneagram six. Um, yeah, Kron is a really good friend of mine. Have you read oh, this book? I uh, have not. No, I have uh, not. I, I need to. Book. Yeah, The Road Back to You by Ian Cron is really great. So. I need to because I love the Enneagram. But I'm wondering how much of this, may, and maybe it's just me, but how much of this maybe stems, like that need for control maybe stems from shame? Do you oh, feel yeah. like that's a big part of that to start us off into that pit? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, in addiction recovery work, we tell people that anxiety, shame, and trauma are kind of like the three-legged stool of addiction. Maybe if there was a fourth leg, it would be isolation or a, or a disconnection uh, disorder, a connection disorder of some kind. But, um, but shame is uh, so, um, gosh, I mean, it's, it's just bred into us and we all buy into it so much. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, shame is, is huge in the way that we see ourselves mm-hmm. and the way that we, in, in fact, I think, uh, and, you know, the best, the guru of shame, of course, is Brene Brown, who, um, you know, has written so many books, uh, and research about it, but, you know, the way we take our shame and project it onto others. Um, but, but I know that in addiction, we are as addicted to our shame as we are our substance or our behavior, you know, um, cause I'm, I'm asking people not why the behavior, why the, why the pain or why the shame, you know, why the anxiety, uh, when they come in to see us, um, because the pain and the shame are what's driving behavior. The behavior is easy to understand. I do these things because I numb out and I don't feel like me and have to be me and have to face life when I do them. Mm -hmm. Um, that's pretty cut and dry, you know, but, but why am I in so much pain and why do I feel so much shame and why do I not feel okay with me, um, to begin with? And that's a big question. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting because even now in our world and and even the the people that I'm surrounded with Facebook scrolling is such a, a numbing out vibe, right? Like that's what it's for is to numb us out. I feel like we come home at night and we're tired and we scroll. It's turned into that. Um, 
but it's interesting because I don't think that when I'm doing it, I would never associate that with like, what, what is the reason, the need that I feel to do this right now? Um, and it probably most times is either shame or some sort of insecurity or disconnection from God. And I'm wondering when you talked about prayer, you had said just a little bit that you, you know, you feel like you were preaching at God. So when we go into prayer and we might not feel like we're connecting with God because probably of our shame, how, how do you feel like you've gone into it of, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to feel the shame because it doesn't just go away overnight, or at least in my experience, it doesn't go away overnight. Um, But I'm still going to step into this time with you, Lord, even in my shame. What does prayer look like then when you're trying to be honest and you're trying to meet God in a place that's like, I can't pretend in front of you. What, how do we go into prayer in that kind of a way? What does that look like for us? Well, I think that it, um, it starts with just, for me, I think it starts with just silence, mm. you know, just being quiet for a little bit before I crank it up, so to speak. Um, because if I'm not careful, I'm going to perform for God and I'm going to tell him what he, what I think he wants to hear. Mm. Um, and it takes me some quiet to really realize this is what I'm bringing with me today. I feel I feel inadequate and I feel insecure about X, Y, and Z. I'm experiencing anxiety because of A, B, and C. Here's where I really don't know if you're trustworthy, you know, um, and admit that. Um, I know that um, I have these needs and I want to trust you with them, but I don't know exactly where to go with them. So I'm just going to surrender them. They're not mine. They're just, they belong to God already. I've assumed them and I've taken them on and I'm in a situation that's very real. I'm not trying to go into denial about it, but it's not mine to fix necessarily. I love what Thomas Merton says in his prayer, uh, the Catholic mystic uh, who's passed away now, but he uh, had a prayer that basically at the end said, you know, I don't know the perfect path. I don't know your perfect will, but I do believe that it is, um, he says, I do believe that it is my desire to please you that pleases you and that it's my desire to please you that, uh, to know your will that will lead me to your will essentially. Um, so in other words, God obviously knows that we have limits as these, you know, frail fallen creatures and, you know, broken creatures that we are. And, um, I don't think God expects us to find that perfect path as much as I think it's our desire to please him that pleases him. So as I begin to just say, use me as you see fit and let me just release any sense that I have um, a control or a responsibility in that even, um, that it will come to me and I will see and be obedient you know, make me accessible, make me open, make me willing, you know, is kind of a little mantra that I have. Mm. And it's neat because I see in your story that you had come to that point of kind of giving up that control when mm-hmm. all else had failed, right? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and you call it the miracle of desperation, which I loved. Um, mm-hmm. But listening to this and thinking, because for me as a listener, I think, well, how do I give up control? <laughs> I mean, and again, that's, 
trying to perform in some way, right? Now it's a thing on my checklist of, well, now I have to give up control. So I have to make that a thing every day. Yeah, make a thing out of it. Yes. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's just our natural tendency to right. do that. And I'm not even a professional Christian, right? Like I, that's not even my term. I, um, I know how broken I am, but I still make that a thing. Right. You. So I love that it's it's kind of a no. The miracle of the desperation is that's it. There's no other choice. This isn't something that I can check off. It's just something that kind of happens. I come to the end of myself and say, I'm basically so desperate that I, I can't control this anymore. Um, right. And I loved that part in your story and hearing that out. So now that you, you know, now as you've, you've kind of found your sober living and your story and you're moving through that, then like you had said, your, your wife passes away and now you have to try to reinvent your identity mm-hmm. even more. Now you go from caregiver to trying to figure out who you are now. What, right. what was that like? I can only imagine the emotions that went along because you did most of this sober work before, correct? Right. Okay. So you had done all of this work. Did you feel somewhat like you were kind of pushed back and had to start over in a sense? Or what was that like? Well, yeah, because I, in some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways, um, because I got sober in 2005 and Trisha passed away in 2013. Okay. And um, so we had some good sober years together with me, but she was in a hospital bed in our home for the last seven years of her life. And so, the um, the conversation I had with my counselor one day uh, that I write about is that um, you know I, I we knew she was in hospice care and we were you know looking at a very limited window of time uh, for her for her life and my counselor asked me if I was prepared for the anxiety I was going to experience when she passed away. And I was like, Marilyn, you know, <laughs> no, 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 you know, this is not it. And uh, so uh, anxiety is not going to be a, an issue. It's going to be uh, sad. It's going to be hard. Uh, but I think I've grieved a lot before she's passed. So I don't anticipate um, anxiety. I, I honestly think I'm, I may experience relief, you know, mm-hmm. um, in a lot of ways. Relief for her, relief for me, all that stuff. And um, what I didn't anticipate was that grief is not a pay ahead plan. Mm. Um, you know, we grieve before we lose people, of course, when, uh, when we have long illnesses and things, but um, you grieve losses of your marriage before your marriage is actually over, all those kind of things. You know, we, we grieve ahead. I, I don't mean we can't, but, um, but grief is not pay ahead. You get this thing and it happens. And I remember the, you know, the, the very next day um, after Trisha passed, waking up and being um, completely at a loss for what to do. Because normally I would go in her room at 630, turn her, make sure she had what she needed to get her cleaned up for the day. And we'd start the day and all of that. First day, she passed away at 1030 at night Then on a Monday night. Tuesday morning at 6.30, I wake up and go to her room and there, she's not there and there's nothing to do. <laughs> you know, there is nothing to do. Um, nobody to get breakfast for, nobody to turn, nobody to, to see after. Um, and I'm absolutely um, 
thinking, I, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with myself. And that was the very beginning of a lot of loose ends where I just had this time on my hands and suddenly I didn't, I wasn't needed in the same way anymore. And my excuses for not doing certain things in my life were beginning to be eliminated. You know, mm-hmm. um, why aren't you pursuing uh, like this addiction certification you've wanted to do this recovery work that you wanted to do? Well, Trisha's sick. I'm, don't have the time. I this, I this, I this, I this. Um, that's not true anymore. You know, what it, now what are you going to do? Um, well, I guess I could start to do some things I've said I wanted to do. Um, I guess I could um, take uh, more seriously some of the things that I'd like to be engaging in in my own, you know, self-care and things like that that before just felt selfish. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was a very, it was a very weird, abrupt turning point that happened literally almost literally the minute she died because you're suddenly not necessary in the same way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I experienced that in a number of ways after that, um, where I just kept waiting to be needed. <laughs> I wasn't. And, um, and I kept waiting to feel normal again and, and, and normal was never going to feel normal. You know, even though when she got sick, we adjusted our normal. And then after she was gone, my normal had to be completely different again. And, um, you know, I, um, I talked in the book about being like the guy that fell asleep on an airplane and, you know, I was heading to Cincinnati and fell asleep and ended up in San Diego and the weather's great, but I don't know anybody in San Diego and I completely, you know, I am lost. Hopefully somebody in San Diego will lead me around and introduce me because in the analogy, uh, you know, in real life, I can always fly back to Cincinnati, but um, in, in San Diego, in the analogy, I'm stuck there, you know. And I've had to make a life there and figure out what that's going to look like. And that's, uh, that's abrupt. Mm. And your whole story has been so much, you've had so many changes throughout your story where it's like you would, you know, in my mind, I've, I've had some changes where I thought, well, I should be good at this by now. (laughs) I should know how to deal with this, but everything is so different. Right. And just another lesson that I'm like, okay, God. I don't know anything about this. You had to pick this of all things. I don't know anything about this. Yeah, it is, you know, part of me, it's left me not with a cynical way, but uh, sort of a don't get too used to anything kind of a feeling. Yeah. Um, It it does probably probably play with your attachment issues a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but, and I guess, right, that's kind of the lesson, or at least that I've learned is, okay, through all of this, I seem to have it kind of the rug pulled out from under me when I'm starting to get too comfortable of like, again, I'm falling back into, I can control this. <laughs> and I feel yeah. like that's kind of when it's like, nope, never mind. We're going to teach you again that you can't control yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, which is, you know, causes living life with a loose grip, you know? Yes. Uh, because it's not, um, you know, it's the difference between expectation and anticipation. I think mm-hmm. um, expectation is kind of rooted in fear and demandingness, I think. Mm-hmm. And learning to live in anticipation means that maybe there's something better than what I have or would even know to ask for um, that I can believe in, that God would have ahead of me when 
when things do get changed or snatched or whatever. And, um, and I don't mean that in a, you know, a, a syrupy, uh, Christian-y, mm-hmm easy answer way. But I really do believe the difference between contentment and, and peace and uh, versus uh, an, a very anxious life is learning to live in an, a state of anticipation as opposed to expectation. Because if I attach everything based on my narrow view and ideology of what it should look like as what people should be doing and what my life should be like and you know what my daughter's choices ought to be and all this kind of stuff um i'm gonna have a lot of resentment potentially and again i i can't afford it i can't afford a lot of resentment because that just takes me to places i don't need to go but um, yeah. anticipation leaves me very open-ended. You know, it's kind of like the kid in the magic set at Christmas. You know, there there had better be a magic set in that box under the tree or I'm going to be really disappointed and Christmas is going to be a disaster and a wash, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it could be a puppy, you know. Um, and he didn't ask for a puppy because he didn't think he even had a chance at getting a puppy, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of a silly analogy, but in a way no. that's sort of how, you know. It is. No, it's good. And I love that, that perspective, because like you said, expectations we set and they can, they let us down. They disappoint almost on the regular, but the anticipation lets you keep the hope, right? Because that's kind of the, the feeling. And especially with God, if I set an expectation that he didn't meet, I feel like Mm -hmm. I start to lose my hope. I start to, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I pull away my trust and I say, you didn't earn this in any way. Um, and the hope then as it starts to sink down, I then, you know, you you start to despair and that's where it comes into, this is my life and this is all that he's given me. So that's a really neat perspective of thinking maybe that's a way of kind of catapulting our hope because we're just anticipating rather than expecting. I like that. And I love your, I love your, the ending basically to your story of where you are now. And now you have gone and you've gotten certified and you're helping. And, and one of the biggest um, pieces of my healing journey was when Aaron told me, okay, now I'm going to have you go teach someone else. And I went, I don't want to do that at all, (laughs) but I learned so much more about God and about myself when I started helping others. So what do you think, like, what perspective can you put on that for us is that's maybe what, when we've walked through something, that's what it's for. And that's what it's about. How, what have you learned about that in your time? Well, um, you know, I, that's, that's a good question because, um, I don't, there are some things I don't know if I'll ever really know the, the why or what it's for or what it's about. Um, in my lifetime, I may never know certain things about why certain things have happened the way they have, but what I can do is trust that, um, that as I, as I walk through them and I, and I walk with, other people through them, um, that it's not just to benefit me, hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, uh, whatever, whatever it is that we deal with that, that there is, like you're saying, there is a bigger reason. I learn more from my clients, I think, um, than, um, than they probably ever get from me because, um, they're so honest and, and raw and ready to, to really, um, dig in and see some change happen. And they're so at the end of themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're so honest about it, um, that it just challenges a a lot of things, even now in my own, in my own sphere of, uh, of, 
um, of life. Uh, I just, I just find that so much of the time I'm, I'm hearing people saying things that they're trying to connect the dots. And, you know, part of what we do in recovery work is help connect the dots to the pain so that we can address causality instead of symptomology and all this kind of clinical stuff. But, but the reality is, is that they are just telling me the truth and they don't have it. They don't, they're not going to decorate it for me. And I think that, um, they've lost their illusion of certainty, which is huge. I, I lost mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in, in a lot of faith circles and Christian circles, we often confuse our certainty with faith, you know, because we're so answer oriented, you know, we've got to have answers for people we right. think. Um, and sometimes, uh, the best answer to somebody is, you know, God, that sucks for you. And I hate this for you. And I hate that you went through this. And I'm not sure why you had to deal with any of this. Um, but where are we going to go with it? And what are we going to do with it? How much power are we going to let it have over us? You know, that's like our next, our next question. And so, um, so the whole thing with, um, you know, just purpose, um, you know, gosh, I don't know. Cause I hear some horrific stories, uh, that people have had that, um, I wouldn't begin to try to help them understand a, a why behind it, but I do want them to understand that, that they can move past it. And, um, there is purpose beyond it, you know, cause sometimes I think there's just, I don't, I don't know how to make sense of some, some things, you know, I don't know if that'll ever have a place or, you know, my own personal theory in some of it is that um, I've come to the conclusion in some of this that I don't want to know why, because what if it's to benefit somebody I don't even like? You know? <laughs> <laughs> what if a bunch of my suffering is to actually like somebody that I don't even like? <laughs> oh my goodness. I have never thought that, but I can see how I probably yeah. have subconsciously thought that. <laughs> yeah. God says, you know, here's the thing. Um, yeah, you, you went through a whole bunch of that right there, just because this idiot across the street that you can't stand, uh, is going to somehow come to a place of, uh, experiencing truth by observing you in this and you're going to go, no way. (laughs) That's not a good reason. (laughs) No, no, I'm not, I'm not assigning any of my suffering to his benefit at all. (laughs) <laughs> which is which is funny because as much as funny as it is it's such a good point that we don't know what it could be for and that's m- probably one of the reasons why God leaves us in the dark on so many things right because yeah, if he did yeah. tell us that would be our answer <laughs> yeah, we don't always need to know why <laughs> yep and I love that and I think it's neat though because as I'm listening to this and I'm hearing you say I loved your answer of um you know God this sucks right now because I we don't always know what to say. And I feel like for even for anyone listening, this can look like a cup of coffee with someone who just needs you to sit with them. You know, this could, we don't have to be, you know, certified in just loving people. And so that's, that's such a good truth to remember for all of us is that this can be very simple. This can be, let me just sit with you and let me feel the pain for a minute. And that's maybe my whole job in this and nothing more. Empathy, you know, I, I have a whole, I mean, I have a whole rant on a lot of things, but, um, <laughs> uh, but empathy particularly, because the difference between trauma, you know, uh, something being traumatic or not is really whether you have an empathetic witness. We use the word trauma a lot. and People think, you know, well, I've never had to run through a minefield in Kuwait. I'm not, I'm not traumatized or I've never been abused in this way. I'm not 
experiencing trauma, but trauma is just anytime you're alone in your pain and don't have an empathetic witness. Mm -hmm. And so if you can be the person to sit down with somebody and say, me too, or here's what I experienced similar to your experience. And here's how, um, God met me in that. Um, you can be an empathetic witness when they feel alone. And, and then the sting of that, what would be trauma has a witness, you know, and it, and it's not alone anymore. And, uh, and that's huge. It's huge for people. And you're right. We don't need credentials <laughs> to do that. We just need to be able to love some people. Mm, it is. It's so neat. So as we kind of wrap up, I'm curious, what would you, what would your advice be if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, I want to live the sober life from whatever it is that they're feeling like they need to release control of, what would you say would be like the very first step to do that? Oh, that's a great question because, excuse me, the first thing I think of is connection. You will not do this by yourself. You will not have these um, uh, epiphanies or these uh, uh, real moments of confession and admission by yourself. Find find people whose lives uh, exemplify what you want to experience Mm -hmm. and align yourself with them whether that's a group, um, whether that is a 12 step group of some kind, if you have a particular issue that needs, you know, 12 step work, um, or whether it's just a a very honest group of, uh, people that, that get together regularly and share their lives, but find people that you can, that you can speak your truth to. And I don't, I don't mean you need a dozen. You might just need a friend or two that you, that is really a confidant, but you, you have to be able to say out loud what is true in your life so that it becomes real and you have to deal with it. Because as long as it's just this concept that rolls around inside us in silence, never confessed. I mean, that's what one of the monks told me. He said, you know, we confess because it, we say it aloud and it becomes real and we have to deal with it. Not because we just need to be forgiven. We, that's not the point. It's so that we can be known and we can see things for what they are and then be willing to, um, know that you are going to go through the most, um, the most emotionally, um, taxing uh, experiences of your life, undoing all your motivations and your, um, your, your expectations and your resentments um, of the world and the, and the people around you so that you can release them. All these emotional hostages that we all have in our lives that we've taken, we have to release them. And, and in doing that, we will find freedom. And in freedom, we will not feel the need to manage or control or dictate what life is going to look like in order for me to be okay and have peace. Because peace is not life going my way. Mm -hmm. Peace is me being at a place of contentment, even if it's not. And that is possible to do. Um, But it is, you know, whether it's a substance or not, sober living is really just a surrendered life. Mm -hmm. You know, it really just is a surrendered life. And, but it takes people and help and honesty and um, a lot of, um, a lot of really being able to see where your, where your part in some of your unhappiness is, you know, and own it. Mm -hmm. And then ask yourself what you're willing to do about it. Yeah. 
Well, and that's neat too, because as you're saying, like it's confession, that whole piece on confession, I'm thinking, wouldn't that be neat if we thought of confession as a gift to ourselves rather yeah. than like this, another moment to shame us. Exactly. You know? So exactly. that's, and that's neat that that's kind of where it starts. And, and like you're saying, reemphasizing that this does not happen alone. I think that that's where a lot of people get into, I can do this. And I think you even had said that in your book, I can do this by myself. I can do this yeah. and no one needs to know. And it never exactly. works out. Yeah. Yeah, and, exactly. And it's we are that. built in community. So that's good to remember. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We all want to, we all want to privatize our pain and um, it really doesn't, um, it doesn't pan out so well. <laughs> no. Well, thank you for doing this with me. I'm wondering if there's anyone listening to this, what does your kind of job look like now? Is this something that you do over the phone or is it always in person? Or if someone wanted to reach out in any way, is that a possibility? It absolutely is. I have, um, most of my sessions are in person, you know, throughout the day. I have an office in a, in a suite with other uh, counselors, but I have, uh, Skype and phone sessions that I do. I've got clients in probably four other states right now that we just okay. have an assigned time every week that, you know, Thursday at four, I call when I'm done with my previous session and we have our session at four and, you know, I accept payment by, you know, credit card, Venmo, PayPal, whatever. Yeah. And we just have this um, arrangement like I would with any other client. And we, and we just begin to go through um, what is uh, troubling and not working in somebody's life with regard to um, addiction or compulsive behavior, or just letting go of some spiritual ideologies that are no longer working for them, you know? So. Okay. So how can people get in touch with you if that's something that they wanted to find out more yeah. about they, they can uh they can actually call me at 615-642-7054 which is my uh extension for myself uh and they can email me at d b h and the number four a s o n g at comcast.net dbh for a song at comcast.net and i will be happy to um communicate and set up a time and um my uh, my website is davidbhampton.com, um, and right now I'm in the process of switching it over from um, kind of what my uh, writing work and all of that was to more of a clinical page, so hopefully I'll have that up and go in here very soon, so. All right, well, thank you so much for spending time with us and for sharing so much wisdom with us, and for the book. We I really appreciated that. That meant more than you know. Yeah, I so appreciate the invitation, and and you taking the time to read it and talk about it um, really means a lot. So I, it's been great. Thank you, David. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you want quotes from each episode or want to find and reach out to the awesome people interviewed, please find us on Instagram under at Tales of Moxie and follow us for all the details and for info on who will be on the show in the weeks to come. As always, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at talesofmoxie at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.